This is American Resistance, a mini-series highlighting the people and stories from David Rothkoff's latest book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. Hello and welcome to American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation, a special mini-series from the DSR Network. I'm David Rothkoff, your host and the author of the new book, American Resistance, on which this series is based. Each week for the next six, we will present to you a special guest with whom I spoke during the preparation of the book, who can speak to the core issue it addresses, which is how government professionals, career officials, and appointees put their oaths of office ahead of party loyalty and repeatedly staved off disaster during the Trump years. My first guest is Olivia Troy, former senior advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, former official in the Department of Homeland Security, dedicated national security specialist who's worked in the U.S. government since the early days after 9-11. Hi, Olivia. Hi. Nice to have you join. As I have said on Deep State Radio before, you're one of the reasons that I ended up writing this book. Because talking to you multiple times about what you did in the administration, both on the microphone and and off and talking to some of your colleagues, it became really clear to me that there were folks like you who took their jobs real seriously, who were responsible for things not going off the tracks, even when some of the checks and balances in which we sort of thought we could count, courts, Congress, didn't work so well. And so, you know, that's why I went out and I I talked to 100 people like you, including you, and in a variety of areas, defense, COVID, which I spoke to you about, health, immigration, elections, foreign policy, and so on. It was real clear to me that things could have been much, much worse but that, you know, the majority of people working in the government, as has been true throughout, by the way, my career, were fundamentally good people who were committed to public service and staved off, as I, as I noted at the beginning, some, some bad outcomes. But I also noted, as I was doing it, that Trump and those around him started to realize that's what was happening and started to try to pluck those people out, replace them with lackeys who would do what they wanted to do. And now it's gone from that to the entire sort of leadership of the Republican Party or the MAGA GOP supporting ideas like the Schedule F idea, like, you know, let's fire 50,000 of these people. That's become central to what they're doing because they were so frustrated by people who said, no, you have to follow the law. No, you have to follow the Constitution. No, you can't do something that is damaging to our national security. And so that's why I wanted to talk to you. And I I guess the place I'd like to begin is, what do you think of the thesis? Look, first, um, I am so grateful that someone is telling this story, because I think you You see a lot of the headlines, and I think a lot of them are shocking along the way. You read a lot of the books about that people are writing from that were in the Trump administration and the stories that they saw and witnessed. 
I think this book is different because it really tells the story of those of us who were just trying to survive on a daily basis and what was going on behind the scenes uh, in a manner um, that I'm looking forward to reading because it's a, it's a different angle of it. Those of us that lived it firsthand and what we went through. And I just know this from my conversations with you and how thoughtful you were when you were having this, these discussions with me. And um, honestly, when I heard, when you just said a hundred people, I was like, wow, that would make for a great group therapy session. I just, <laughs> just because of everything we lived, I was like, I need to talk to these hundred people because I'm sure like many of us have trauma from having lived it. I've never really thought of it that way, but I realized that when I start to read books about what happened, I actually have to read them in very small spurts and then put it down because it brings back so many memories. And for me, it's just very real. So, you know, I think this is a very interesting perspective and I think it is an important story to tell because there were good people who did their best to navigate. And some of those good people got fired along the way. Some of those stories, it will never be told, but I certainly saw people that I worked with, especially early on, get removed from their positions that they were in senior roles um, because they were cleaning house or they were placing them. It was kind of like you were worried that you were going to end up in the basement with your red stapler. In fact, actually, I was known for giving people gold staplers when they would depart the vice president's office that I was close to on the national security team. And it was sort of an inside joke of, you know, we'll remember each other with the gold stapler on your desk. It's such an interesting, unique gift. But also, at least we didn't get fired or get put in the basement with our red stapler. And that was sort of an inside theme between us because we just never knew when we might get fired for telling the truth. And a lot of it outside of Mike Pence's control, right, which is who I worked for, uh, as much as he could weigh in and as much as he operated very differently with his national security team when I was in the White House, there were other forces in control and in charge whose voices at times weighed in at a much greater level. That's great. And I'm glad you were helping support the mental health of, of your colleagues with your, your gold stapler club. I'm, I'm happy to give you the names of the other people with whom I spoke if, if you think the group therapy would help. But before we, I, I get into some of the questions about the subject matter, you know, one of the things that, I mean, you know, doing a podcast is kind of a great privilege, just like doing a book like this is a great privilege, all the books I've done, because I get to talk to people who've had interesting careers, right? And typically, I mean, you're on TV a lot, and typically people, they go, oh, that's, that's that Olivia Troy, she, she, you know, and they boil it down to sort of a Twitter length, well, she would she didn't like Trump. She worked for Pence, COVID. You know, that's the story, right? That's the thing. As I get to know you and talk to you, I, you know, I know your government career started 20 years ago, you know, that you worked in multiple areas in the government. And that's part of the story here is that these people just didn't land in the government. They, you know, you, you, they didn't just, you know, they chose to work in public service, not to go work on Wall Street or someplace else. And um, could you just describe in 60 seconds your government trajectory? Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Wall Street because I actually know quite a few colleagues along the way who, right after 9-11, similar to me, made the decision to leave their careers on Wall Street and go work in government service because we were all driven by the national security mission, which is where I, I got involved in government. Was It was after 9-11. I remember walking home from the, the Hill. I'd begun my career in politics 
I saw the Pentagon and I saw the aftermath and how tragic it was that day. And I never forgot it. And so that is when I decided that I wanted to work in public service as a career person for the greater good uh, and really focus on national security, counterterrorism. And so I've spent most of my career here and on assignments, either on travel or deploying overseas or on short-term TDYs working on efforts on counterterrorism, whether it was in the Middle East or Africa, and then spent quite a few years in the Pentagon as a civilian side by side with the military, and then later on really shifted my focus to the homeland. And that's because I was kind of looking at global threats and watching what was happening here domestically. And that's really where my passion was. And I wanted to shift and kind of apply my expertise to the homeland lens. And um, that's sort of how I end up at DHS and take an assignment there. And then I end up in the vice president's office. I actually started at DHS uh, on Halloween, which I guess tells you that maybe perhaps the joke was on me the week before Donald Trump got elected into office. So I was there a week and he got elected. I do remember thinking I am likely going to be in the hot seat just because of what he had said during the campaign, a lot of the anti-immigrant rhetoric. I knew that DHS was going to play a big role in that. Um, And sure enough, when he got elected and the inauguration happened, we were definitely in the hot seat with a lot of the executive orders that they issued. And I remember you're talking about your first days. And actually, I believe you went to Baghdad. You were in Iraq in in the early days of the U.S. trying to set up some kind of semblance of a government there and were at risk. But that the arc of your career takes you to a point where by standing up for the same things that you were fighting for in Iraq, you ended up being put at risk by hard right extremists in the United States, you know, that you would get threats and I, I think continue to because you speak your mind. It must be quite a striking turn of events that it went from one to the other. Like it's really hard to actually process and accept that, that this is happening in our country. We're used to watching this in foreign countries and we're watch, you know, we watch democracy struggle. We watch countries that are failing democracies. And it is really hard to accept that this is where we are right now in the U.S. It's happening to me and it's happening to so many others. And it's concerning. Like, and I'm really worried about upcoming elections right now and what that means for election officials and poll workers and things like that. And I look back on those days and I remember when women were voting in Iraq and how proud I was back when they got the right to vote. And I have to tell you that that is painful for me to look back on and think about how people in other countries, when they finally get the right to vote freely, don't take that for granted. And that's certainly something that as a child of immigrants, I never took for granted here and was raised to be very patriotic and acknowledge that freedom. And it's frightening to me that now we're in a situation where our elections are being undermined, poll workers are being you know, threatened, election officials are being threatened based on a fundamental freedom that is a underpinning of our democracy. It's upsetting, <laughs> David. Something that keeps me up at night. Yeah, it's, it's striking to me, by the way, you say as a child of immigrants, I'm a child of an immigrant. Some of the other people I talked to in the course of the book who were the most patriotic were either children of immigrants or immigrants themselves, whether it's Alex Vindman or Fiona Hill or, you know, some of these, these other folks that some people know about. Immigrants appreciate what we're supposed to have in America in a special way. And that's, I think, one of the dark ironies of the 
Trump years and trying to keep immigrants out and vilify them, which is not, by the way, just a Trump thing. It's a it's a hallmark of the entire extreme right movement across the world right now. But to go back to the to the book and the thesis and just a couple of questions, you know, one of the things that I did in the book is I, you know, I call it American resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. And as I was talking to some people, maybe even including you, I don't recall. But as I was talking to some people, they were like, no, no, I, no, don't call it resistance. I don't, I don't want it to be called resistance. I was just doing my job. And some others were like, no, no, don't this deep state, you know, don't play into their hands. Well, I have deep state radio. I've been doing this for five years where essentially I wanted to sort of, to use the technical Washington term, take the piss out of the idea and say, you know, there is no deep state conspiracy, but there are government professionals. and you know, there's something we should value in this country. And that's, that's how I'm trying to flip that. But when you have been working over the course of your career, and somebody says, beware the deep state, what's your reaction? You know, I certainly heard that term throughout. Actually, I mean, I never heard it before until Trump got elected and was in office. I've never heard people refer to government people like that. Maybe Maybe it was said along the way, but having worked under several presidential administrations at a very senior level or for very senior cabinet level people, the first time I came across that term was was during the Trump years. And it was hurtful. It used to really bother me because I was like, okay, I guess if I'm the deep state, I'm waking up at 6.30 in the morning every single day and I'm working sometimes until midnight on these executive orders. I think I took one day. No, actually, I didn't take a single day off from the inauguration day when Trump got took office. I think until late September, I worked every single day, including weekends that summer on a lot of the executive orders. And I can tell you that an entire team at DHS did. And so when I think about that term, it just, it sounds so disparaging. I do love the fact that you're kind of like taking the wind out of the sails on it and being like, okay, here's a deep state. Let me tell you what they're like. And this whole conspiracy is really non-existent because we really just, we actually do work for the greater good and we work at the pleasure of whoever's in office. To be honest, that's what it is, right? But I do remember that. And I remember having a conversation with someone in the vice president's office, and I won't say who it was, but I think they knew that that to me, that was something that I took very personally and was hurtful. And I do remember someone saying, you know, it's really unfortunate that this is a scenario because government people, especially during the first impeachment time, this is when it was said to me, will never be looked at the same way again going forward. And I can't tell you how hurtful it was in the pit of my stomach to hear that because I thought of all these people who have spent their entire careers serving very proudly and working very hard, regardless of who was in office. And that just uh, was really a big sign of where we were at the time. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at the Global Dispatches podcast. Global Dispatches is the longest-running independent world news podcast. It's hosted by veteran international affairs journalist Mark Leon Goldberg, who conducts thoughtful interviews with policymakers think tankers, journalists, and experts of all stripes from around the world. The Guardian called it a podcast to make you smarter, 
we think you might want to give it a listen as a person who just by virtue of the fact that you're listening here has an interest in international affairs. This is just the kind of podcast you might well want to be listening to. Global Dispatches covers issues ranging from conflicts and crises in Africa and the Middle East to long-term trends in international relations and the latest geopolitical intrigues at the UN and beyond. If you like Deep State Radio, you really need to give a listen to Global Dispatches. You can find Global Dispatches, World News That Matters, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. One thing that struck me in doing the book is that the original big lie was not Trump's. It was Reagan's. Because Reagan said government is bad. You know, he promoted this idea that less is more when it comes to government. He made the joke, I'm here from the government and I'm here, you know, here to help. And, and when you vilify government, it has a number of effects. One effect is it denigrates the work of people who are in the government. It makes it less likely that you will get good people in government. It makes it easier for you to get rid of government functions, some of which help people. It makes it easier for you to get rid of government regulations, some of which, the consequence of which is increasing inequality. And when you say government is bad, it makes it easier for you to question the statements of government, which leads leads to the next big lie. What do you think about that? I mean, it's been around a long time, this attack on, on people in the government. Yeah, I'd say it's it's definitely increased over the past couple of years. And I think it's dangerous, to be honest, to kind of because I think it pits the people against the government, right? And that's how you end up encouraging conspiracy theories and what's happening here. And I think it can lead to potentially threats on lives. I mean, and I say this because of what's happened more recently, we're seeing threats against FBI agents who are just, you know, executing and doing their jobs. And there are real world consequences. And I think when I think about that, you know, there's people showing up at FBI buildings that are threatening to do things like that. I don't, um, I think that's a dangerous precedent. And I think it's gained momentum in doing this. And I also think that it's also dangerous for our democracy because that's how democracies start to die. When you start to undermine government institutions and it, you know, if it spreads to law enforcement or it spreads to military, we've got, you know, it becomes a very serious problem when they co-opt that. So I think it's definitely a concerning trend. Look, January 6th is a manifestation of mobs of people attacking a government institution. Well, you know, another component of this whole story is, you know, I talked to a lot of people, you and the, and the 99 others or however many there were. And in each case, you know, I, I've landed on a story where Trump or somebody near Trump had a terrible idea. Let's ban Muslims from coming into the country. Let's pretend COVID doesn't exist. Let's fire missiles at Mexico because of the caravans. Let's drop a bomb on North Korea. Let's not give money to Ukraine to get them to help us. But, you know, terrible idea. And in each one of these cases, somebody in the government said, that's not legal, or they became a whistleblower, or they talked to an inspector general, or, you know, they used legal means. I'm not talking about mutiny, right? And they found what several of the people in the book referred to as workarounds. 
you know, that, that Trump would, you know, sometimes it would be like, don't mention Russia in front of Trump. You know, sometimes it would be, we are going to have a, we're going to have a committee that's not actually going to talk to the White House until it's necessary to make sure the elections are safe. There is a tension there, which you must have encountered yourself, where, you know, there's a commander in chief, he's elected by the people. And some of the things he's saying are crazy and or illegal. And so you have to find a way to balance where you are in the hierarchy with following the law and doing the right thing. That's a big inner tension. How, how did that manifest itself for you? Yeah, I think I saw that play out probably every single day, to be honest with you, David. It was a constant struggle of figuring out because you are there and under every administration, they have their agenda and there's political appointees that are there to implement the agenda and the government, that's kind of how it works, right? It's a bureaucracy and it starts to churn and implements. What I would say about that is that there were certainly very challenging times, like having worked on issues like the travel ban, as it was called, the executive order that was really hard, where a group of us really sat down. And I remember how hard those conversations were because it was very clear that there was a certain group of people, a certain arm of the the Trump administration that had a very sort of very pointed vindictive agenda. And it was, the intent wasn't actually what they were saying was publicly. It was very clear that, look, I'm just going to be very blunt. uh, There were a lot of racist overtones that were happening that I certainly witnessed myself and heard them said. And I think it was very hard for us we found ways. We would have meetings. And it wasn't that we were trying to derail the president's agenda. It's because what some of the things that they were doing were actually going to really harm our national security apparatus. They were going to harm our intelligence community. They were going to harm things that we had put in place that people had worked on for a really long time to develop. And a lot of the time, it was so rash in the decisions that we would <laughs> sort of work to walk it back. I mean, we'd have these discussions We'd um, game board it out. We'd uh, try to figure out how we were going to present it in a way that would be a convincing argument, especially to be very blunt when, you know, we would come back with a list of countries that basically we worked very hard to figure out the criteria and it was smaller than we knew what they wanted. And I can't tell you how hard it was to kind of fight that battle almost every single day when they wanted 25 to 30 countries or whatever number, right? And We were like really legitimately based on the criteria and actually legitimate things that we should be improving in terms of passports or things like that. Here's your eight or nine, right? And I can't tell you the look of shocking faces when you knew certain people were in the room who were looking at us like we had three heads and we were aliens and they were like, well, this says that's absolutely unacceptable. And we're like, well, there's 10 of us right now in the room telling you that this is what it is. And we're also telling you the reasons why this is a really bad idea. And so I think we, we build coalitions, right? It was like the coalition of the willing where you were kind of, I guess it was the resistance where we were calling each other, trying to figure out this is why this matters. How do we approach this in a way where we basically do the least damage possible overall? Because that's really what was going through a lot of our, our heads. This issue comes back up. Later on, I worked on refugees. I faced the same issue in this scenario. To be honest, Mike Pence was not on the same page as Trump. He was not on the same page as Stephen Miller and a lot of these other people. And 
I was caught in the middle of it because I was going to these meetings and it was clear if it were up to them, that refugee cap would have been zero. And there are numerous people across the administration and government who understand the importance of the refugee program, who understand what this means for our international partners and really the implications of that, and who also understand the bigger picture, which was when we saw the withdrawal from Afghanistan and all those translators and all those people who had stood by us in the field, people that I, you know, people I relied on, translators and interpreters when I was deployed with Ambassador Bremer and others, what it was like to see that under the Biden administration, knowing that not all the blame laid on them, not to get into the politics of it, knowing how damaging it had been internally in the government and the resources that were depleted on that topic, that later we saw the impact of it at the withdrawal because it shouldn't have been that way. These people should have been processing through the system at a much larger number than they were. And that was just simply not the case. And those of us who lived this firsthand have firsthand experiences of what really happened to it. And that's just a real world example of how much we kept fighting internally. <laughs> you know, Secretary Mattis at the time wrote a letter. There were a lot of efforts in the government communicating across, trying to figure out how to navigate in the space to make sure that this critical issue would continue to move forward and how we were kind of kind of like stand against it. Again, not trying to derail necessarily what a president wants, but really trying to educate and explain the implications of such a decision. Understanding fully that there were definitely bad actors in play who sometimes had Trump's ear. And a lot of the time, to be honest with you, half the time, like we didn't know, I don't think he even understood the complications or the ins and out of it. And that's what made it so challenging is that we knew that we were up against a group of people in his inner circle who were also kind of pulling the puppet strings. When you talk about the issue you're talking about here, one of the things that came up a lot was people in Iraq, you know, and that Iraq was a country that you didn't want to keep them out. But there were a lot of people there who helped us. And, you know, we would be turning our backs on them. But it also happened in the case of COVID, where, you, you know, there were people in the administration, and you're being very delicate here, but, you know, on immigration issues, clearly Stephen Miller was one of the people. But on COVID issues, there were other people who were saying, let's not do this for these states, Jared Kushner and others saying, let's not do these for these states, or the president saying, whatever, let's, you know, we're over this, or I mean, I I seem to recall you having a reaction to him suggesting shooting a bleach into your veins. So you encountered this on a regular basis, right? Yeah, and it was horrifying. Uh, Look, especially during COVID, and I'll say even I had the the portfolio with like Homeland Emergencies. I had Homeland Security in my portfolio for the vice president's office. And I dealt with natural disasters. I dealt with mass shootings. I dealt with basically major, every major crisis that hurt our country during my tenure there. I was a person on call 24 hours a day. That was my job. That was my, my, my main focus was emerging threats and events. So anything bad, I was called the bad news bear because when I walked into the room, it was probably because something bad had happened. And it was really hard and also just plain disgusting at times to know that there'd be a natural or a, not a natural disaster, but a disaster declaration sitting on the president's desk desk and then he wasn't signing off on it because it happened to be in California or it happened to be in a blue state. And he was just trying to be vindictive and he was playing petty politics instead of actually thinking about these are American people who really need the help, whether it was wildfires, whether it was 
extensive hurricane damage in Puerto Rico, like numerous issues like that in the aftermath where you just wanted to shake people and say, like, this is not the time. Like, you're the president of the United States. Your job is to be there for the American people, regardless of their politics in this situation. And that certainly came very much into play during COVID. And it was something that I think many people witnessed. And it was awful, especially when they were making decisions on PPE, on where it was going to go. And they're saying, oh, yeah, we shipped it to New York. Oh, yeah, we've shipped it off here. And Dr. Fauci is sitting in the middle of a task force meeting saying, I am talking to my friends in the emergency rooms in New York City. They are telling me that they don't have they don't have the gowns. They're not getting the PPE. They're telling me I'm talking to them directly. And they are saying that they're in the middle of a crisis. So you're telling me right now that this has gone out. Why are they not seeing it? And I remember how visibly angry he was, how angry Dr. Brooks was and others. Watching that unfold, it's just incredibly disturbing to think about that because that was the overlying layer of this. And if it weren't for people, Pete Gaynor, I, you know, I have tremendous respect for him. He was running FEMA at the time. If there weren't people who actually stepped in and ran it like a real crisis and tried to ma- manage the dynamics and still try to figure out a way to get these supplies and people and, and figure out how we were going to manage the stockpile that was being depleted because it was being shipped out. It would have been even worse is all I'm saying, right? It would have been, I can't even tell you, like if it would have been run the way a lot of these people wanted it to be run, Jerry Kushner's of the world, who really did not understand the, me- the mechanism behind government, why we operate that way, why we do things in a certain order and the natural disasters are in crisis and how the machine kind of comes together. It would have been gravely worse and it was bad. It was a write out, complete disaster, the way it was handled, even though there were a lot of people who were trying to do the best they could in a very impossible situation. So let me ask you one last question, because I don't want to take too much of your time. You, You talk about how it could be bad, but clearly along the way, Trump and those around him started to say, hey, wait a minute, these people who follow the law are pain in the ass. And we want to, we've got to find a way to get them out of the way. And we could see it at the end of the administration. He would fire people. He, he wouldn't go through Congress to appoint them. He'd appoint acting people. Well, he put people deep down in some agencies. I, I don't think we even know to this day the consequence of some of what he did in the national security community, particularly when you see it in the light of what he did with some classified documents. And now you've got this move afoot to say, well, if we come back in, we're going to put in place this Schedule F. We're going to get rid of these people. We're going to you know, make it easier for the president to fire people and thus politicize many more levels of the United States government. And when I was doing the book, almost everybody I spoke to, many, many of whom were lifelong Republicans, uh, some of whom were in the cabinet, said that what they feared was that Trump would be reelected. Because what if he were, this was going to happen. And now we can see, you know, because Newt Gingrich and other people have embraced this idea, that even if Trump is not the next president, that if the sort of MAGA GOP gets back, you're going to end up with this same thing. And so I'd like to end with whatever kind of analysis slash warning you've got to go with that phenomenon. No, I think that that's absolutely accurate. I do think that towards the 
end of the Trump administration, there were a lot of yes men and yes women being put in place. I saw people, they were cleaning house at the National Security Council. They were placing people that honestly did not have the qualifications or experience to be in those senior roles. When you think about the fact that this is an apparatus that really drives foreign policy or domestic policy, or a lot of the portfolios that I covered, emergency responses, right? When you think about that, and or you think about cabinet members and what that will look like, it is frightening to think that it's going to be all these unqualified conspiracy touting people potentially running the entire U.S. government apparatus. And I'll say that's about the Schedule F order. That was already in draft the last year of the Trump administration. It was a known thing. The draft was circulating in the White House. I was fully aware of it. In fact, I was warned by a direct boss of mine. General Kellogg, who later, by the way, said he fired me, but these are the conversations we would have, who told me to keep my head down. And that I, he knew that I had worked really hard as a member of his team, a critical officer, but this was a very real thing and that people were on the chopping block and that he would do his best to protect me. I can't tell you what it's like to have a frightening conversation of that when you're like, I'm not really doing anything wrong. I'm actually just trying to do my job in the best way I possibly can to support the vice president of the United States during this, especially during the pandemic when it was very, very challenging. Um, So I think, you know, what started happening there and the types of people that were put in place, I think will 100% happen. Should Trump or someone Trump like get elected, that's what you'll see. I mean, I can't, I think it would be very frightening to have someone like a Mike Flynn in charge of the entire department of defense. I can't tell you how dangerous that would be. I just, it sounds like it's hyperbole and it sounds like it's exaggerated, but it's not. I mean, when you think about the Cash Patels of the world, who will be in charge, when you think about people that really, many people that shouldn't really actually have a security clearance or maybe didn't have a security clearance, but were operating like they did, I think that is a very frightening situation. And when you have someone like Trump or someone like that that comes into office, you're not going to get the people that served this time around, right? As much as they may be judged for having worked in the Trump administration, I certainly get judgment for taking an assignment in the vice president's office, but we won't have people like that in place and they won't be allowed and they won't be welcomed, right? Because they're going to, it's a full on revenge vendetta against anyone who stood in the way. And as someone who saw former longtime mentors, decorated admirals, Navy SEALs, get fired unceremoniously for telling the truth about Russian interference in our elections, for warning about the danger of it, seeing longtime mentors of mine, women, very senior women in the intelligence community get fired just because they were thought that they were going to be deep state and they wouldn't serve loyally to Trump. It is incredibly dangerous what's to come if these people get in office. Thank you for stating it so clearly although it's a cliche to say, thank you for your service. I don't think people say that enough, frankly, to people who work in the government, as opposed to working in the military, but anybody who is working to serve their country deserves that. But also thank you for being candid about it and for speaking out about it. It's really important that people see this before steps are taken that do irreparable and irreversible damage here in the United States. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I talked to you for the book. That's why I'm talking to you right now. And it's why I hope to keep talking to you on on the podcast and other ways as we go forward. But for now, 
Thank you, Olivia Troy. And uh, folks, the book is American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. And it's a lot of conversations like this one. So it's not my words, it's their words. So I hope you'll go and and you'll uh, read it. We'll be back next week with another one of these in this mini-series, which will go, I think, six weeks. And uh, hope you'll join us then. For now, bye-bye. Bye-bye.